That chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the best sports bar in Navy Yard, located just across the street from Nationals Park. Also a great place to check out if you're headed to Audi Field. Make sure to check out their self-pour beer wall and unlimited TVs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing a high drive, deep right center field. Nimmo going back to the warning track, to the wall, and it's gone! And the Nationals are back in front just like that. Home run for C.J. Abrams, his third. The Nationals three and the Mets two. And Abrams has driven in two runs. On his way back to the dugout, what a blast by C.J. Abrams. Finnegan coming set. The right-hander to the belt, the kick and the pitch. Swing and a fly ball, left center field deep. Coles on the run, way back on the warning track. He's there, he makes the catch! He makes the catch and the game is over! A curly W is in the books! 3-0 offering, swung on a dribble up the third baseline. Can he make a play? Picked up the throw to first, is not in time. And a run will score. Three runs are home, the Mets lead it 3-1. Here's the pitch. Swing and a ground ball toward the middle on through in the center field, a base hit. Trotting home from third is Marte. And it's now the Mets eight of the Nationals one. Barcana is three for three, drives in his second run of the game. Just can't get him out. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, May 15th. 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We hope that all of the mothers listening had a nice Mother's Day. The Nats had a mother of a day on Sunday with what was essentially a doubleheader off what was a mother of a night on Saturday night for fans who were at Nationals Park. Oh, trust me, we will be getting to that. But the Nats ultimately have lost two of the first three games of a four-game series against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. Friday night, we had the 3-2 loss. Saturday slash Sunday afternoon, a 3-2 win in the rain-suspended game, and then later on Sunday, an 8-2 loss. That's now 17-23, 40 games into the team's 162-game regular season. This episode of the Nats Chat Podcast, sponsored by CapeIvy.org. For each $10 donation in honor of Mother's Day, a hospitalized child will receive a free poncho. That's CapeIvy.org. So, C.J. Abrams had a big day on Sunday. We had more problems for Nats relievers Carl Edwards Jr., Mason Thompson, and Kyle Finnegan. Max Scherzer pitched at Nationals Park on Sunday. Oh, by the way, Mark, there is quite a bit to digest from these last 48 hours. 
Yeah, a lot happened, Al. Some of it good, some of it bad, some of it very ugly, as we'll get to. Just the fact that they were playing 16 innings on this day was kind of a fiasco to begin with. They got through it, and really, if not for one just disaster of a fifth inning in the nightcap, this might have been a pretty good day for the Nationals. Good stuff from them in the first game, especially good stuff from C.J. Abrams, and then good stuff from Jake Irvin for four innings, and then came the fifth, and it fell apart for him and for Mason Thompson. That kind of spoiled everything else, but as long of a day as that was, as long as a weekend has it been, I don't really feel any differently about the Nationals than I did coming in. I still feel pretty good about what they're doing, the quality of baseball they're playing, and the fact that you know, they're going toe-to-toe with a Mets team that should be leaps and bounds better than them, but isn't leaps and bounds better than them. I mean, it's not as simple as you just multiply everything by four because we know so many things can change, but the Nats, as we're speaking here, are on pace for a 68-win season, maybe even a 70-win season, you know, with a little bit of luck here. 70 wins off 55 and 107 last season would be quite an improvement. So yeah, there is a lot to feel good about if you are a Nats fan. But, you know, With the baseball, we had all that, and we will get to all of that. But I think the number one talking point from these last few days here is what happened on Saturday night. People were furious with what went down at Nationals Park on Saturday night, and justifiably so. This was amateur hour. So like we said, rain-suspended game that started on Saturday was concluded on Sunday. So the game started on Saturday at 4.05 p.m., just a few minutes after a steady rain began. Now, from that standpoint, there was some bad luck in all of this because there actually had not been that much rain at Nationals Park during the day up until that point. But if you were familiar with the forecast of the day, you knew that rain was all over that forecast. Game got going, and as the game went on, the condition of the field grew steadily worse. The game was halted after basically like an absurd occurrence, a one-out double by Michael Perez to center field and what ended up being a one-run Mets third. This was ridiculous. Perez and the Mets runner on first base, the uh, rather hefty Daniel Vogelback, ended up having to be so careful in running in the slop that was the infield dirt. And that center fielder, Alex Cole, who had broken in on the ball before running back, he ended up having to be ultra careful in running to get the ball. So the game got halted, probably should have been halted sooner. Then came the rain delay, which lasted for an interminable three hours, 56 minutes, during which fans at Nationals Park were provided with very few updates. But also during the rain delay was little rain after about two hours, give or take. And the grounds crew kept working on the field, but the game wasn't resuming and the fans continued to receive very little in the way of updates. And then finally, after that rain delay of again, three hours, 56 minutes, the game was officially suspended. Fans were irate. Again, they had every reason to be. You were at Nationals Park. I will let you have the floor. Sound off in any way that you see fit. Oh, there's a lot to discuss about this one, and there are multiple entities to place the blame at. Let's go through chronological order, because I think that's the easiest way to do this. So let's begin with the fact they started the game. It was a mistake, but this was, I think, an honest mistake and one that I can't fault the Nationals that much for. Let's remember, the decision to start the game rests with the home team. Yes, the forecast was for rain like from 2 to 7 p.m., from 2 to 3.30, there really wasn't much of anything, and it had totally stopped. And so by 3.30, half hour before game time, you say, it's dry. We think it may stay dry a little while longer. They've been burned before by starting a game in a delay and then having it not rain for a long period of time. That's not a good look. 
So they said, all right, we're going to pull a tarp. We're going to prep the field. Let's let the starters get out there and warm up and let's go. It didn't work out because five minutes before the first pitch, like as the national anthem is being sung, it starts raining and it starts picking up from there. But like I said, I think that's an honest mistake. That's a mother nature situation you can't really do much about. So that's the beginning of it. Problem number two, we get to the top of the third. And by this point, the rain's coming down pretty good. And the previous half inning, they had the grounds crew come out to work on the infield. They did the best they could. And it was already within minutes covered up. You couldn't even see the diamond dry that they're putting out there. It was already being soaked up. So that inning, they let three batters come to the plate. By the third one, like you said, that double, and I'm double in quotation marks because who knows what might have happened had Alex Call had footing and everything else out there. It was clearly affecting the game now. And so Paul Emmel, the crew chief, calls it off. Now, let's remember, once the game starts, it's in the hands of the umpires. So it was not the Nationals' decision to keep playing. It's this weird thing where I, it's a bizarre like way that baseball approaches these is that you don't want to start a game in the rain, but if it starts raining while you're playing, you'll play through it until it just becomes completely unplayable. And it seems odd because it clearly was not a playable condition. And the reason this was so important in the end is that because so much rain fell, especially in that last inning, the entire infield dirt got soaked. Now you cover up the infield with the tarp, you wait a good two hours till they removed it. And by that point, the infield was too wet, had no chance to evaporate, and you could put all the diamond dry you want on it. It's not going to solve the problem. And so as we all waited and you see the tarp come off and everybody's thinking, okay, we're going to have baseball here in 30 minutes or so. Well, there had never been an announcement about the game restarting. We never saw any players take the field. So you started to sense something's up here. We saw Buck Showalter and Davey Martinez go out there and start examining the infield. And you could tell they didn't look totally satisfied with it. They walked off the field. I think John Turnauer, the grounds crew chief, said, give me another half hour. Let me see what I can do with it. And I'm not going to fault him. I think, again, there was just too much rain on an open field to salvage that operation. But as this is all playing out, those of us who've been through enough of these, you kind of start to see the signs that tells you they may not actually be restarting this game tonight. The problem is the majority of fans in the park and anybody watching on TV doesn't have that same perspective. And all you see is a tarp taken off, no rain falling, and the grounds crew working on the field. And in your mind, that means, oh, they're going to resume the game. We're going to stick it out. And the fact that there were zero updates, you said there was minimal updates from the Nationals, though there were zero updates from the start of the rain delay when they first announced it until they finally announced the suspension of the game almost four hours later. And that's problem number three with all of this. I get that it was still uncertain. They were still trying to figure out exactly how they're going to approach this. But you owe it to the fans who are sitting through all this to give them something. Even if it's not a 100% clear answer, say, fans, we're very sorry. We're trying to get the field ready. We're not sure if we're going to be able to. We're going to give it our best. Or once that decision was made that said, we're not playing tonight. And I feel like it was at least 30 minutes from that point when they made the decision until the moment when they actually announced it. You tell fans, unfortunately, the game is being suspended. We are still going to work on figuring out when this is going to be made up. Please check our website, check Twitter, whatever for the updates, but don't make them then wait another half hour when you've already decided the game is going to be suspended and you have to figure out the details. Now, a lot of that's on MLB, it's not just on the Nationals. I think there's a combination of blame to go around here, but you have things that are out of your control, Mother Nature, but there are things in your control and communication with fans to me 
is number one on that list. It's not the first time it's happened. And sadly, it probably won't be the last time it's happened. That to me is the problem. This isn't the first time something like this has happened. You know, we started doing this podcast in 2021. I feel like we've had this conversation a few times already. And to anyone who's followed this team for more than three years, you probably have had this conversation at some point. So as you outlined, and I think it's it's important to understand this, it's up to the home team whether to start a game. It's up to the umpiring crew, specifically the crew chief, whether to halt the game. And then it's up to MLB whether to resume a game. So you have three entities sort of in play here. I think 100% you fault the crew chief for not halting the game sooner. I think you certainly can fault MLB for not making a decision on the game sooner. I'm with you. I don't really fault the Nats for starting the game when they did. There was a lot of bad luck involved in that. But the Nats deserve to be bludgeoned for the lack of updates. I mean, that to me is a joke, okay? That to me is amateur hour. And I thought this was interesting. If you watched the games on Masson on Sunday, so I'm talking in this instance about the rain-suspended game. Bob Carpenter at one point was talking about the fan outrage from the previous night, and he let it be known that the Nats did not receive an update from MLB for about an hour and a half at one point, and that that perhaps was behind the lack of updates. I have no reason to think that Bob is wrong on that. But I think a few things. Number one, Bob almost certainly got that from the Nats themselves. And number two, that suggests to me that there's finger pointing going on as opposed to accountability taking place. It may well be that MOB did a bad job of keeping the Nats updated and thus the Nats didn't have necessarily great updates to provide to fans. You still have to give fans something. And that's what I can't get over. This is public relations 101. This isn't complicated, okay? Tim Shovers did an abbreviated installment of this podcast that came out early Sunday morning. We as a podcast updated people better than the Nationals did during that rain delay. There's no excuse for that. And the fact that this has happened multiple times previously is what the outrage is about. It's not about the game being halted. It's not about the game being suspended. It's about the lack of communication. I mean, your ticket paying fans, your customers, you treat them with respect. You know, you don't disrespect them by not updating them. And I just find that to be so bizarre. And, you know, another thing is this. It has never been easier for people to not go to games. The comfort of watching games at home has never been higher with, you know, big screen TVs and, you know, these lifestyles we live with tablets and we're online all the time and you know, we all have a million things going on and everything else. You know, Nats Park is not an easy drive for a lot of people. Parking is expensive. The tickets are expensive. You got to make going to the ballpark as easy and convenient and as pleasurable as possible. And when you don't even update people during a rain delay, you're doing the opposite of those things. And I just can't get over that, that after all these years, this is still a thing. The Nats not properly updating fans during a rain delay. You're not wrong about any of that. And now I'm going to add yet another layer to all this. And that was the way that they rescheduled it, which was to have a split admission pseudo doubleheader, okay, where now they're saying if you had a ticket to Saturday's game, you can come to the resumption of that game, which is going to start at 1230. If you had a ticket to Sunday's game, which was originally scheduled at 135, you can now come to that game, which is going to start at 435. So what you've done, and this is all happening at about like 9 p.m., I think, on Saturday night, roughly, when this all comes out, you've now told 20,000 plus fans who either waited out the rain delay or left early, by the way, sorry about all that. If you want, you can come back at 1230 tomorrow to watch the rest of the game. You've now also upset 
24,336 fans who paid for Sunday's game by telling them very late at night, oh, by the way, that ticket you have that says 130 on your ticket stub, there's going to be baseball being played at 130, but that's not the game that you have a ticket to. You can't come until 430. And this wasn't some random day in the season. This is Mother's Day. And let's be honest here. People make plans well in advance for that. I don't know what everybody had in the works, but I can imagine there were a good number of people who had planned either for brunch as a family in the morning and then straight to the game, or maybe we're going to go to the game at 1.30 and then that'll give us plenty of time to get home and have dinner together. By moving that game to 4.35, instead of making this a single admission, if you had a ticket to Sunday's game, you get to come to everything that happens on Sunday. Come when you want, leave when you want. If you had a ticket to Saturday's game, you can exchange that for a future game whenever you want to come. That added a whole nother layer to this, and you just frustrated and angered a whole new segment of fans that wasn't even there on Saturday. So again, a lot of blame to go around and on multiple levels for multiple reasons of how that was all handled. I found it almost comical, too, that the person from the Nats who ended up apologizing to fans was Davey Martinez on Saturday night. How many times over the last few years has Davey been forced to essentially take bullets for things that he doesn't have much to do with, but he's become almost like the public face of the Nationals in so many ways. So, you know, it's been years since Stan Kasten was with the Nats. He was the public face of stuff like this for years, rain delays, ticket sales, marketing, business ops, etc. Who is that person now? Like, under whose purview does what happened on Saturday night fall under? Mike Rizzo has generally taken over those kind of public responsibilities. And Rizzo was here and he's obviously involved in all the decisions. He was not made available for comment, you know, in the way that a team president or or somebody else might have been. I agree with you. It's not for Davey Martinez to have to take that one for the team. (laughs) There are plenty of things for Davey to stand up there and talk about good and bad that fall under his purview. I don't think this one should fall under his purview. But yeah, that would generally be a Mike Rizzo thing. And I'm not even saying that's 100% on him either. These are business decisions, and there's only so much that he's involved in business decisions. So now you're talking ownership, front office people, you know, VPs, that kind of stuff. It has been somewhat of an issue for a decade now since Stan Kasten left. And whatever you felt about him and the job that he did, that was at least a very public person to handle all non-baseball-related issues, all business-related issues. We don't have that, and it's a major reason that we've you know, heard so little about ownership and the sale process and everything else, for better or worse, over the last year. So that speaks to a larger issue. But I agree, it felt wrong for Davey Martinez to have to be the one apologizing. He had nothing to apologize for. His priority there is to make sure his players are safe and not put them on a field that could cause an injury. He has nothing to apologize to fans for. The organization, that's a different story. I still can't get over the lack of updates. I mean, the Nationals Park official Twitter account a few times tweeted out, we're still in a delay. And apparently that was the extent of the updates during all of this Saturday night. I just, I can't believe that. It costs you nothing to update people. I don't get where the team was coming from and not providing more updates. Even if you don't have anything to say, say that you don't have anything to say. Let people know what the heck is going on. I'm sure in their minds, they are thinking, well, if we don't have anything definitive to say, we're not going to say anything. 
there's a way still to convey something to fans, to say, fans, we're very sorry. We are trying to get the field ready. We hope to get it ready, but we're not 100% sure if we'll be able to. Please stay tuned, whatever the case may be. And then, and this has happened many times, and, and look, it is a complicated process to reschedule a rainout or any other made-up game. You have to go through MLB. Maybe there was a long delay with the league office to coordinate all that. I don't doubt that that was something that happened. But again, there is a way to communicate to fans in a timely manner, at the very minimum, that the game is being called, and we will get back to you as soon as we can with updates on how and when it's going to be made up. You don't necessarily have to wait to have every detail before you put it out, especially when you have thousands of fans who've already been waiting more than three hours through a rain delay and and their minds are still expecting a game to be played when clearly a decision had already been made not to resume the game. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, NatShack community. One of our loyal listeners, Eric and his son, Andrew, are sponsoring today's episode for a very worthy local charity. Today, we shine a light on CapeIvy.org. When Meg Smith's son couldn't stay warm in the hospital, she designed fleece ponchos that kept him warm and wouldn't interfere with his IV lines. Now, Meg donates ponchos made with fun fleece fabrics to other hospitalized children through an all-volunteer nonprofit. Cape Ivy is a D.C. area charity that has donated over 12,000 ponchos across the country to keep kids warm in memory of Meg's son. Check out their website, capeivy.org. For each $10 donation, a child receives a poncho. That's C-A-P-E-I-V-Y dot org. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Some amazing news from Window Nation. You can modernize and reinvest in your home today with new windows from Window Nation, all while capitalizing on Window Nation's best deal of the year. 0% financing for five years. Unheard of. Zero interest for five years. And Window Nation will give you two free windows for every two windows 
that you buy. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Protect and increase the value of your home today by taking advantage of this great offer. Again, 0% financing for five years and two free windows for every two windows that you buy. And by the way, that goes for any style of window from Window Nation. And there's no limit. Save thousands of dollars on your new windows and save money on energy bills, all while upgrading the look and feel of your home. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Here's the set. One, two. Swinging a bouncer toward the middle of the diamond. It's on through the center field and base hit. Rounding third is Canna. He's going to score. Rounding second. Heading for third is Fan. There'll be no play there as the throw goes into second base from Alex Call. The Mets have the lead for the first time in this game. Well, in part because of the rain delay debacle on Saturday, and just in part because of the nature of this series, the first three games of this four-game series for the Nats against the Mets have featured three very weird starting pitching performances for the Nats. The 3-2 loss on Friday night, Mackenzie Gore, four scoreless innings on 96 pitches. He somehow escaped unscathed, but he threw 96 pitches over four shutout innings. Then we had Trevor Williams in the 3-2 win in the rain-suspended game, and he only ended up pitching in the Saturday portion of the game. Understandably, he ended up being charged with one run in two and a third innings, and the run was scored on the day on which he did not pitch. The run was scored on Sunday afternoon off Trevor pitching on Saturday. And then we had Jake Irvin in this 8-2 loss on Sunday, game three of the series, six runs in four and two-thirds innings. And if all you do is look at that box score line, you say, well, Jake Irvin got shellacked. Uh, Not really. There was a lot more to his outing than just those numbers. He tossed four scoreless innings before being charged with six runs in what ended up being a disastrous eight-run fifth inning by the Mets against the Nats. Irvin in the eight-run fifth, Gave up a double, three singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. Now, one of the singles was this brutal two-out opposite field RBI infield single by Francisco Lindor on what was essentially a swinging bunt to the left side of the infield for a 3-1 Mets lead. And then we had the adventures of Mason Thompson, and we'll be getting to that shortly. But, you know, Irvin, over his four and two-thirds innings, 90 pitches, six strikeouts. I mean, you can't say that he was good, but he wasn't as bad as the six runs in four and two-thirds innings would suggest. But some strange stuff happening with Nat starting pitchers so far in this series. The final line for Jake Irvin, I don't think reflects at all the way that he pitched. I thought for four innings, he was really good against a really good lineup, the best one that he has faced so far in the big leagues. And even with the struggles in the fifth, and you could see it starting to come apart for him a little bit, getting tired. Now he's going to face the lineup for the third time. Even so, there's a moment there against Brandon Nimmo before things really fell apart. I think only one run was in at this point where he gets off the bat a ground ball to where the second baseman normally is playing in the infield. And for a split second, you're thinking 4-6-3, inning over, one run allowed. He just did it. He got through the fifth. He's good. And at that moment, as he throws that pitch, his ERA as a big leaguer is 0-6-7. That's through 15 total innings. And I looked it up because I was anticipating maybe this would be something by the end of the day and it proved not to be, but I'm going to share it because it's still just too good to not share. If he gets out of that inning, even if he gets out of the inning only giving up two runs, but at that moment at 067, 
He's going to have the best ERA in Nationals history for your first three starts for the organization. And the three at the top of the list are going to be Jake Irvin at 067, Max Scherzer at 083, and Steven Strasburg at 186. How about that list that he was this close to being on? Now, he's nowhere close to it anymore because he's at 411 after the whole inning devolved. And the things that happened after that, some of them his fault, some not. There's some bad luck, like you said, the little swinging bunt. There's a hit by pitch. And then Mason Thompson allowing a bunch of inherited runners to score. So he's not there yet. But in the bigger picture, I'm still very encouraged by Jake Irvin. And if he can figure out how just to finish that start and get a little better luck and make a couple more quality pitches and get through the fifth with minimal damage... I still think there's a lot to like about him. It's unfortunate that this one left such a sour taste in his mouth and everyone's mouths because the final line was so ugly, but I thought he pitched a lot better than that and was so close to getting out of it. Yeah, it's been encouraging with him pitching and the more you see, the more you want to see more and you know, regardless of what happens with Chad Cool and his recovery from the foot injury, like I don't want Jake Irvin being taken out of the rotation. Like I want to continue to see this year. You know, I, I think we all like what we're seeing, and like we just said, the final line not indicative of uh, how we did in this game on Sunday. So the Nats bullpen, a lot of relievers have been used over these last forty-eight hours here for the Nats. There have been some good performances. Erasmo Ramirez in the 3-2 win in the rain-suspended game started the Sunday portion of the game. He officially tossed two and two-thirds scoreless innings with four strikeouts. He did allow an inherited runner to score, did give up four hits, but all of the hits were singles. He threw 44 pitches, 32 strikes versus a mere 12 balls, so that was good. We had more good stuff from Hunter Harvey. He in that 3-2 win in the rain-suspended game, one and two-thirds perfect innings, did give up an RBI sack fly to allow an inherited runner to score, but he also struck out Pete Alonso swinging to begin the top of the eighth, despite Alonso being ahead of the count at 1.30. But Carl Edwards Jr., Mason Thompson, and Kyle Finnegan, these guys are not in great ways right now. Edwards had problems on Friday night, then Edwards in the 3-2 win in the rain-suspended game, and what ended up being a one-run Mets seventh, faced three batters, got just one out. He gave up a one-out full-count single by Michael Perez through the right side of the infield, then gave up a one-out double by Brandon Nimmo toward the right-field corner. Mason Thompson was a debacle in that eight-run fifth for the Mets in the 8-2 loss on Sunday. He faced four batters. He got just one out. He came into the game top of the fifth, bases loaded, two outs, Nats only down 3-1. He, to the first batter he faced, issued a one-out, four-pitch, bases-loaded walk of Brett Beatty for a 4-1 Mets lead. Then Thompson gave up a one-out, two-run single by Starling Marte on a fly ball to no man's land in shallow center on an 0-2 pitch for a 6-1 Mets lead. Some bad luck there, okay, but that was an 0-2 pitch. Then catcher Riley Adams, who had a really rough game in this 8-2 loss on Sunday. He committed a two-out throwing error to allow a run to score. Then Thompson gave up a two-out RBI single by Mark Canna up the middle on a 1-2 pitch for an 8-1 Mets lead. So Edwards continues to struggle. Thompson continues to struggle. And, you know, Kyle Finnegan did get the save in the 3-2 win in the rain-suspended game, but he again had problems. A scoreless top of the ninth despite giving up back-to-back two-out singles, and if not for some good defense by Alex Call, things could have been very different. This was Finnegan's first appearance since May 6th when he blew the save chance in the 8-7 walk-off loss at the Arizona Diamondbacks. So, you know, like I said earlier, a lot to take in with all of this. And like I said, there has been some good with the Nats bullpen in this series so far, but man, Edwards and Thompson especially, it's not easy to watch right now. 
Yeah, I want to focus on those two, and I'm not trying to shortchange Finnegan, but we talked about him last week after the blown save, and we kind of have a sense of what's going on there. And you're right, Alex Call really bailed him out twice. There was a great play on a ball off the wall that he held the batter to a single, and then the final out, a long run to the left center for the final out. But the other two guys, I think, is having a much more prominent effect on Davey Martinez managing of the bullpen. We know that in his perfect world, he's got Harvey in the eighth and Finnegan in the ninth, and he's even going to Harvey to get out of a jam in the seventh and being willing to let him come back for the eighth, which is what he did in the first game. And that's worked out very well. But you have to have the guys who get to that point. And that's supposed to be Carl Edwards. Coming into the season, it's supposed to be Carl Edwards. And then after the end of April, it's supposed to be Mason Thompson, the way that he was so good through the first month of the season. And right now, neither one is anything close to reliable. Edwards, it's been more of an on and going thing from the beginning. And that is a case that I think you look at, unfortunately, and say, maybe last year was the aberration, that it was a nice bounce back season for him, but he hadn't been a consistently effective big league reliever in several years prior to that. And that just may be the case. Now, Mason Thompson, on the other hand, so good there in April and every reason to believe that we were seeing the breakthrough from this guy and it has fallen apart. He's given up runs in five of his last six appearances and it's gotten to the point that Davey doesn't want to trust him in big spots and that has a bad domino effect on everyone else in the bullpen. We know he worked a lot in April. I asked him straight up physically, how's he feeling? He said there's nothing wrong with him physically. There is a mechanical issue as best as I can tell. He is shortening up his delivery, his reach back. He's not reaching all the way back before delivering the ball. It's kind of short arming it. He has a little bit of that naturally, but it's become even more pronounced. I don't think he's doing it on purpose, but they've been working with him on the side for a good week plus on that, and it's not translating into games. And so you're seeing a total lack of command from him where it used to be, he was what, 70% strikes in April. And it's nowhere close to that. When you're walking the first batter you face on four pitches with the bases loaded, you know something's wrong. And so that is a big problem. They've got to try to straighten that out. I don't know if you do that off on the side and say, we're just not going to use you for the next week, or if you try to resolve it in the game or in low leverage spots, I don't know. But for them to be what they want to be bullpen-wise, Mason Thompson's going to have to be a big part of this. And right now, I don't think they can trust him. You can't. His last six games, nine runs in three and two-thirds innings, and I sure hope there isn't anything physically wrong with him. He does have an injury history of note. He missed a lot of time last season with the right bicep strain, and his fall has been so drastic that, I mean, I'll be honest, I would be surprised if there's nothing physically wrong with him. He was dominant for the longest while this season, and it is completely cratered over the last few weeks. Like To go from the high that he was at to just plummeting like this, usually there's something physically wrong with a guy, but maybe it is mechanical. Whatever it is, I hope he gets it straightened out. But geez, I mean, we talk about relievers being season to season. This guy's month to month. I mean, he was, he's was he gone from excellent to abysmal in just a handful of games here. It really has been something. Do you think the team could cut Edwards? I mean, the, the team isn't exactly oozing with bullpen options. So, I mean, it, you know, it's easy to say, cut this guy, cut that guy, but who are you going to replace him with? But do you think Edwards is in danger of being cut? Not yet. Um, like you said, there's not a whole lot of options. I mean, Jordan Weems is at AAA if they want to do that. Maybe eventually Sean Doolittle's ready and you have to make a decision at that point. But it's a long year. You're going to go through a lot of arms and, and you're going to need guys. And if he's healthy, it's tough to give up on him altogether. 
unfortunately, it may amount to as well, okay, we got to use you in some lower leverage spots. We're just not going to trust you in the sixth and seventh inning of tight games. I mean, I thought it was interesting. He blew the game on Friday night, and then Davey came back to him in a big spot on Saturday. Again, if Thompson is more reliable, maybe he gets that situation. But instead, he goes with Edwards. But who else is there right now? Is it Andres Machado? Is it Hobie Harris or Thaddeus Ward? There are not a lot of great alternatives there. Rosmo Ramirez was very good in the role that he was in, but they kind of need him in that role. So we went from saying, boy, Davey's got all kinds of great options in the bullpen to, oh man, outside of Hunter Harvey, who does he really have at the moment that he can trust? And not a lot of names on that list. No. Somebody call Mike McDougal because uh, we need some help <laughs> in that Nats bullpen. <laughs> Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Kbert Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat's Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfas has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red-hot antitrust, IP litigation, white-collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years, in fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. The 2-1. Swing a line drive, base hit right center field. Rounding third, Candelario. The throw will go in towards second, and the Nationals have the lead back. Candelario scores on the two-out single for C.J. Abrams. And the Nationals lead the Mets 2-1. Well, a positive for the Nats over these last two games here against the Mets, C.J. Abrams. Abrams on Friday night did go 0-4, but he had a big day on Sunday. Four run scoring hits. Abrams in the 3-2 win in the rain-suspended game. Two for four with a solo homer and an RBI single. You know, Nats one run fourth, had a two-out RBI single to right field for a 2-1 Nats lead. And then he and the Nats one run seventh, had a leadoff home run to center field. Yes, I said home run. The Nats homered. That homer gave the Nats a 3-2 lead. And that homer was some shot by Abrams, 411 feet per stat cast. And then Abrams in the 8-2 loss on Sunday, two for four with an RBI double and another RBI single. He had a one run second, a two-out RBI double off the right field wall on a 1-2 pitch from former Nats ace Max Scherzer. Not bad for C.J. Abrams. Gave the Nats a 1-0 lead. Now, the double did come on a fly ball that was uh, rather poorly played by Mets right fielder Starling Marte. But still, an RBI double off Max Scherzer is an RBI double off Max Scherzer. And then Abrams in the Nats one-run eighth, a two-out opposite field RBI single to left field to cut the Nats deficit to a two. C.J. Abrams' overall offensive numbers for this season are not pretty. His OPS is at just 690, but he is number one on the Nats in runs batted in with 21. And if you drill down on his numbers with runners in scoring position, his OPS is 778. This guy has been, dare I say it, clutch for the Nats. He's coming through in big spots, and he did so on Sunday. 
I'll take it another level. This was coming into the day, so it's we'll have to update it since. But Baseball Reference has a high leverage split to look at, and he was coming into the day hitting 343 with an OPS, I believe, over 850 in high leverage spots, whatever that is worth. He seems to like those situations. He said, I have confidence in myself. He is starting to hit the ball with some more authority. He's hit three homers now this season. They have all come in the seventh inning or later, and two of them have given the team the lead, both of them against the Mets, coincidentally enough. So for whatever reason, he is starting to thrive in those big spots. That's a really nice development to see from him. He's still hitting at the bottom of the lineup. Maybe it'll stay that way, but if he does continue to produce like that, maybe there is an opportunity for him to move up to a more prominent position because Lord knows there are guys hitting ahead of him in this lineup who are not delivering anywhere near as reliably as he is in those situations. Yeah, it was great to see Jamer Candelario in the cleanup spot in uh, game two on Sunday. That uh, was really good. He drew a couple of walks, but I don't understand this Candelario thing. I mean, you know, wh- well, why does Davey keep putting him up there like that? That, that to me is strange. And Jake Alou was in the number five spot. What'd you think of that in the uh, the second game on Sunday? Against Max Scherzer. <laughs> Go get him, kid, right? Two of his three starts so far being against Max Scherzer and Logan Webb of the Giants. Tough spot to be in. I think it's a reflection of others. It's a reflection of Dominic Smith really struggling. He's hitting sixth or worse most times. It's a reflection of Cabert Ruiz not catching both ends of a double header, and you're not going to hit Riley Adams any higher than that, obviously. So not a lot of great options there. And look, Jake Alou had a nice night the other night with the first career hit, great play in left field, but in totality now in three games, Again, some very tough pitching, to be honest. He still doesn't quite look like he's ready for this, but we'll see at the moment until Corey Dickerson or Victor Robles is ready to come back. And we may be getting close with Dickerson. It's a Lou and Stone Garrett in left field because there really isn't anybody else to put out there. Yeah, I'm a little surprised we haven't seen Ildemaro Vargas yet. I suppose maybe on Monday we see him in left field, but uh, such is life right now uh, for the Nationals in that left field spot. So we have game four of this four-game series on Monday. Patrick Corbin will get the start. By the way, is there any reason that this is a Friday through Monday four-game series, or is that just kind of a quirk in the schedule? I think it's a quirk in the schedule. Remember, teams are now playing 13 games in division. So that means there will be a four-game series against everybody at some point. Typically, that would be Thursday to Sunday. In this case, remember, the Nats just came back from the West Coast. They're not going to make them play on Thursday after flying back from San Francisco. So you get that day off, and then you have the wraparound series to Monday. A little strange, but it does happen every once in a while. Our thanks to our sponsor for this installment of the Nat Chat Podcast, CapeIV.org. For each $10 donation in honor of a Mother's Day, a hospitalized child will receive a free poncho. That website, again, is CapeIV.org. And uh, yeah, knowing what we know about what happened on Saturday evening, a free poncho is a very good thing. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the show, we'd love to have you on board, see what we can do for you. Hit up the mastermind of this podcast, Tim Shovers, that email address again, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We have a new website, NatsChatPodcast.com. You can listen to previous installments of the show. You can order yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt at that site. Again, the site is NatsChatPodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram as well at Nats Chat Podcast. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on 
and That's Chat Podcast. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you very much. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.